so this week we're reading yet another Torah portion about the um, building of the tabernacle. This is not the first, not the second, not the third Torah portion I'm talking about the building of the tabernacle. And it's not the last either. Next week we're also going to be talking about the tabernacle. And the question is, what is so fascinating, so special about this um, tabernacle, that this, this place of worship, that it occupies a greater space in the Torah and Ten Commandments than the story of creation, um, than, than anything else, really. This is like the, the, the central theme, I mean, of so many, of, of, of Torah portion after Torah portion. And yet, it seems like something that doesn't, on the surface, if, if you look at it just, just with, with, with eyes of flesh, does it really accomplish so much? What, what, what really changed? What, what really is so unique about it? And why is it so important to, um, to us as, as Jews? Like, why, why, why is this the thing? There's an Israeli um, journalist named uh, uh, Yoram Tarlev. He, he um, was talking to this um, new immigrant to Israel who was a carpenter. And the carpenter was telling him how he really is upset about his new surroundings in Israel. Moving there was so hard for him. He can't get the same kind of business. So he's like, why is it so hard? I mean, people... Um, Hire carpenters in Israel, like they did where you come from. Where you come from? I come from Morocco. Morocco. Yeah, we have we have um, chairs and tables and 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 bookshelves. And what, why is it uh, so hard to find work? So the carpenter said, "No, the kind of work I did in Morocco, people don't aren't interested in here. People are interested in I make a chair for Elijah the prophet, a chair for Elijah for, for a bris milah, for a circumcision. Those those chairs aren't in, in high demand here." Like they were when I, when, I was, when I was living in Morocco. And so Yoram was very, very uh, touched by the story. He made a song which became a very, very big hit in Israel. And he, um, the song has a few um, parts about a, uh, a, a shoemaker who longs to make shoes for Elijah the prophet, about this guy who wants like a chair for Elijah the prophet. And it became such a sensation, I think because it touches on really the answer to our question, which is, there's nothing as holy as the physical. The physical reality, which occupies 95% of our time, although it seems so earthy, so frozen, so dead, so cold, and yet this is the center of, of our lives because it's the center of Hashem's purpose in creation. Hashem's purpose in creation is He wants to have a home in the lowest realm, and therefore our involvement with the physical world is something which is which is so all-encompassing. So, let's um, let's backtrack for a second, and let's um, let's let's ask on the simple level, what's the purpose of this house? What's the purpose of this temple? Mechaim. Amen. There was um, a great argument among the sages of history about the location of um, the commandment to build the tabernacle. We have Rashi, we have the Ramban. And they both look at the uh, Torah and they both have different opinions about what, how exactly this commandment worked. 
Look in the Torah, in simple level. Hashem gave us a commandment to build a tabernacle. Hashem told Moshe about it. In Parshas Truma. And then we have the sin of the golden calf. And the Torah portion we read yesterday. And then we have, today, the new Torah portion talks about how Moshe gave the commandment over the Jewish people and actually built the tabernacle. So it sounds like the commandment came before the sin of the golden calf. And then there was a golden calf. And then Moshe didn't give it to us until after the golden calf. So that means Moshe held on to it for a while. So that's how Nachmanides understands it. Nachmanides says that the commandment came before. And the reason why um, Moshe didn't give it to us was because he thought that this, after the sin of the golden calf, he thought this was, this was canceled. It was, there was an idea, there was a mitzvah that the Jewish people to do, but the Jewish people now are undeserving of receiving it. Once Yom Kippur happened, and Hashem forgave the Jewish people for the sin of the golden calf, so then Moshe Rabbeinu then relayed the commandment that was given to him before the sin of the golden calf. And that's how the simple verses of the Torah read. Read the verses of the Torah, that's what it looks like. Pasha's tomb of the commandment, then the golden calf, then when he finally tell the Jewish people, after Hashem forgives them, after Yom Kippur. But Rashi doesn't understand it that way. Rashi says, there is no chronological order in the Torah. The Torah places it in, the, in the, a different order than actually happened. Rashi says that actually the commandment of building the tabernacle was a response to the sin of the golden calf. It wasn't, like the Nachmanides learns, that despite the golden calf, still Hashem decided to forgive us and give us his mitzvah anyways, but it's because of the golden calf that we had this, have this mitzvah. Why? There was an um, emperor for a very long time in Austria in the uh, 19th century named Franz Joseph. And uh, how many years was he? 60 years. I mean, when, you, when you're emperor for 60 years, you think like you're going to be emperor, emperor forever, right? So he wanted to make a, um, a, uh, a very prominent structure to immortalize him, himself. So he hired the top architect and he just gave him like, free access to the royal treasury do whatever it takes to make the most beautiful, beautiful. What do you make in Austria? What do you make in Vienna? A beautiful building. What are you going to make? An opera house. Of course, an opera house. So he, makes, he spends five years, hires the best architects joining him, and they work really hard in five years, make this big event, they hire the who's who of opera in Europe. And sure enough, Franz Joseph, the emperor, comes and he, and he, he walks in. And he's so upset, he turns around, I'm not walking in here, it's ridiculous. What are they thinking? And, the, and the, uh, who is responsible for this? <laughs> so the architect is a little bit, um, I, mean, it's like, I mean, this is like, it's a, it's a huge, beautiful opera house. And he can't, and like everyone else is like so amazed by it. So he, he said to Franz Joseph, it's my fault, I'm sorry. What did I do wrong? I mean, everyone thinks it's amazing. And Joseph gave him the first rule of architecture of an opera house. Because when you walk into an opera house, you have to get into the climate. You have to get in the environment. You walk up the first flight of stairs. Then you finish your phone call. Walk up the second flight, the second flight of stairs, you turn off your cell phone. Walk up the third flight of stairs, you take a, get rid of the mud and the grime from the street, and then you can enter into the aura of the opera house. That's, that's how it should be. That's how it's supposed to be. You can't, you can't just walk into the opera house. You have to get into the atmosphere. So, the uh, purpose, according to Mary Nebuchadnezzar, according to Rambam, in Gaitha Perplexed, for this temple, 
was more for us than it was for Hashem. Why is it more for us? In order for us to feel the sanctity of Hashem, we had to have this, this house. There's a lady <laughs> during Corona, this guy says, the biggest tragedy was my wife discovered how long Mincha and Meirev takes. <laughs> he used to leave the house, gotta go for Mincha and Meirev, half a day for Mincha and Meirev, half a day for Shachras, and then, <laughs> and then uh, when, when Mincha and Meirev came in their, in their living room, so she discovered that, yeah, Mincha Mayrav actually is like, Mayrav is like seven minutes, and Mincha is for 15 minutes, and Shachras is a little longer, but... Anyway, so um, the lady said, and not one lady, but many, many, many women in our community are like, it's so beautiful, it's so nice to have a shul in my backyard. I kind of go to shul every week, and having a shul in my backyard, they're davening, it's so nice. What's wrong with that? Why do we even need a shul? What's the purpose of a shul? So the... Um, the, the simple answer that Maimonides says, the purpose of the temple, even though as when Hashem told Moshe Rabbeinu in the midst of build a temple, what was Moshe's reaction? Hashem said, build a temple. Moshe's reaction was, was, what? He screamed. How could it be? The heavens, the greatest, the, the, the whole universe can't contain you, can build a house. So the simple answer Maimonides says is, it's, it's for us, to us to feel the atmosphere. Think about when you walk into Shul on Rosh Hashanah. What's the first thing that catches your eye? What catches your eye is the, is the white parechas. The white parechas, you walk in, and you see, they change the parechas. You see, it's, 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 it, it, it makes you feel different. So the purpose of the temple was to change the atmosphere. Like a couple that gets into a need, needs to refresh their relationship. In your juvenile, what do they do? They go to the beach, they go to a park. You need an atmosphere. So the simple idea of the tabernacle, Imani says, is, is for atmosphere. And the reason it was given to us after the sin of the golden calf was precisely because it was an antidote for the golden calf, according to Rashi. According to the, the order that Rashi presents. Rashi doesn't say this. The, the, the order of the mitzvah that Hashem tells us after the sin of the golden calf to build a tabernacle is, is very um, relevant to what the issue was. What was the issue? The sin of the golden calf wasn't that the Jewish people worshipped the calf. It was something deeper. It wasn't they were, according to some, the Jews just reverted to the, the pagan idolatry that they had seen in Egypt, but other commentaries say it was deeper. When they had Moshe Rabbeinu, they had a human being in the physical world they could talk to and listen to, and he presented to them the words of Hashem. So it was like so amazing to them to have someone um, to, to, that they could look and touch and talk to, and he is someone who spoke to Hashem. It's, it's, it's very hard to have this um, belief in Hashem without having something concrete to relate to. So that's why Moshe Rabbeinu looked like, according to the, the Satan presented everyone with a vision. Everyone saw a vision of Moshe's casket. They don't have Moshe anymore. So how are they going to connect? How they, gonna, they want something physical to be the intermediary. The problem was they created the intermediary and they uh, worshipped it. But the, the idea of having something physical to feel, to walk into the temple and to smell the scent of the incense, to uh, see the cherubs, to, to, to see the fire on the altar. That is very necessary for, for, um, for Judaism to, to feel real. It, it, you have to have something physical to present, to make it real for people. That's how, um, and therefore, uh, after the sin of the golden calf, Sashem gave us something, uh, something that we could actually um, relate to physically to, uh, to have a place to, to, to connect to Hashem. Yes, Hashem is everywhere. I mean, it seems on the surface like, a lot was lost by the tabernacle. For, before the tabernacle, where did, where did Noah offer sacrifices? Where did Avram offer sacrifices? 
Loch is offering sacrifices in Turkey, right? And Avram in the south. So, so what's what's the purpose of like minimalizing the space of Hashem? Isn't it? I mean, is, doesn't it seem more logical to have to pray to Hashem anywhere you can, as it was before the temple was built in Jerusalem? You could build a temple, a, a, a altar in your backyard, and having one space for Hashem seems to limit things. But the simple answer is, it's, it was for us, for our our appreciation of the aura of the space, it was for us to make, to make it real to us. But it's, it goes deeper than that. There was this guy which I'm going to mispronounce, and Dr. Bresson will correct me, he lived 400 years ago. His name was Anthony Van Leeuwenhoek. So he was, he was a, um, uh, a merchant of, um, of textile. And he wanted to make sure that his textile was the best textile. So what did he do? He um, used the best magnifying glasses of his time to, um, to, to see, in those days, the way they measured Textile was, was they, they measure with a magnifying glass. Threads per inch. It's a number of threads per, number of threads per inch. Yeah. So he has his, he uses the finest magnifying glass, but he tried to um, upgrade the magnifying glass and work harder and make it look even better and, and, and to see even more. And he actually was the first person to discover bacteria. He discovered bacteria in his effort to uh, analyze his uh, <laughs> textile, he discovered bacteria. And through his microscope, the scientists discovered so much more that exists in the tiny matter that we look at. We look, it looks like so dead. It looks like there's nothing there. But actually, there is a lot of life that we don't... Yeah. What's it called? Protozoa. Protozoa. Yeah. Little animals grow... Little... Okay. All right. Thank you. Very nice, thank you. But the truth is that... This is 400 years ago. But the truth is that there's a lot more life in, in the physical reality than just um, protozoa. Um, it, we all know about the Manhattan Project in July 16th in uh, 1945 at 5.29 a.m. at Los Alamos. They, um, in order to end the war in this they dropped before dropping the, the bomb in Hiroshima. They did a test run in Los Alamos, and um, this this bomb um, caused a, 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 a the language of uh, Robert Oppenheimer, who was the leader of the project. He said that it was it was hotter, it was more bright than a thousand suns, and the uh, smoke went up to twelve kilometers. It was seen from three hundred twenty miles away, 20, 20 kilometers away, and um, and and how did they create this this incredible explosion? And and to perform to, to perform this this uh, this uh, this power to uh, destroy so much of mankind, or in this case, to end the war, um, what was needed to do this? A tiny atom needs to split. A tiny t- the tiniest particle uh, needs to split. So there's there's far more uh, energy in in matter than 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 it seems. It seems matter so physical, so earthy, and yet there's so much. So much more um, atomic power in matter, in matter than, than it seems. There is um, the Rebbe Rashab, put it this way: the Rebbe Rashab talks about um, the birth of a child. It seems like it's impossible, but that's how a child is born. A child is born by the father and mother, and all of a sudden, out of out of nowhere, there is intellect, there's feelings, there's a body, 
and and it's a, a, in the tiniest bit of matter. And the Rebbe Shab says also, when you convey a, a, a concept to someone, you're trying to convey a concept, what do you use to convey a concept? Your words become the thought of the listener. Your physical, earthy words, they become the thoughts of the person you're speaking to. So although it seems that the, the earth is so, that the, that the matter is so, so earthy, so low, so, so leaves so much to be desired in the realm of the ideas and the feelings and and yet, there's so much more power in the physical reality than, than there is in the spiritual. And in order to make a home for Hashem, the only way to make a home for Hashem is with the physical. Why is that? Why do you need the physical? So, so let's go deeper. We gave an explanation of Maimonides. Let's go to the Hasidus. Hasidus says that Hashem is not just beyond the limitation of the physical. Hashem is beyond the limitation of the spiritual. Hashem is beyond the limitation of the infinite. And it's precisely by the fusion of the physical and the spiritual do you see an expression of Hashem's essence. Because the physical has its parameters, and the spiritual has its parameters, they can't possibly mesh together, they can't possibly connect. In order to suspend the borders of the physical and the spiritual, there has to be something which is beyond them both. So therefore, in the physical temple, in the fact that the physical temple becomes a holy space, you have an expression of Hashem's essence. And that's why the holiest temple was not the move, mobile temple in the, in, the, in the desert, but there's a famous Hasidic teaching, whatever is higher goes to a lower place. Because Hashem is beyond all limitations, beyond all parameters, beyond, beyond limitlessness and beyond limitation at the same time, therefore it's possible to sanctify a physical world, a physical space, so much so that even today when we pray, what do we do? Whenever before we pray, what do we do before we begin praying? We turn to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a holy space. What's so special about Jerusalem? Hashem is everywhere. But Jerusalem represents something, it represents the essence of Hashem, the essence of godliness. Because it's only the essence of godliness that can connect the physical to the spiritual. So just like um, we just see in physical phenomena of, of, of so much life in, in, the, in the physical reality, in bacteria and in, and in the and in the, and the atomic explosion, the greatest atomic explosion was in the building of the tabernacle, where all of a sudden there is this godly light of Hashem that's resting in the walls, in the floor, in the, artic- in the articles in the tabernacle. And this gives us a great insight to Hashem's purpose for us in this world, that we look at, you know, our yardstick, and the natural human yardstick is that, that there's, there's what you do and how you feel. And, and how you feel seems to be like, you know, like, like the most prominent. How you feel, how you think. And the earthy things you do seems to be like, whatever, just dry. But as we were discussing yesterday about the, about the half coin, and so, well, it's also last week about the half coin of that weighed uh, half a shekel. And it was a, Hashem showed Moshe a coin of fire to explain to him why this half coin has significance. What was Hashem telling Moshe? Hashem told him, although it's a, just a physical coin, but, and, and, and there are four elements, there's fire, water, wind, and earth, and it's just physical, therefore it's very earthy. Hashem said the physical coin actually is a coin of fire. It's the highest of the four elements, which I present, it's the highest level of spirituality. Although, and, and, and as I was trying to convey yesterday, although it seems like when you dive in, you're not always into it, and sometimes you're mumbling, you're just saying the words, and, and you're not even, and it's like, 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 what did it even accomplish? But the truth is the coming of Mashiach um, I, think we're, I think we're all well-disnified. 
We think the coming of Mashiach is that somebody is going to do like 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 a bottom of the ninth, bases loaded grand slam to bring Mashiach. He's going to jump into a fire to rescue a hostage. He's going to the last mitzvah. Very likely, where do most accidents happen? Statistics say most happen. What? Quarter of a mile. But what they don't tell you is that most of your driving is also in the quarter mile of your house. Most mitzvahs that are done are mumble mitzvahs. If we were to look at all the... Relax when we're familiar. Right, when we're familiar, we're relaxed. Like, yeah. Exactly. So, the fences down. Oh, so you think else. I, 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 was, I was saying that mo, because we, we're so familiar with brachas, we say it so often, so chances are uh, that most of the mitzvah that's going to bring Mashiach is going to be a mumble mitzvah. It's going to be a person not even knowing what he's doing. Did I say a bracha shahakal on this? Did I get stuck before diving today? Okay, I'll put a coin in. And that little action is going to tip the skill and bring Mashiach. And, and forever, that guy is going to be known as the guy who did the last mitzvah. He tipped the scale and was like, what'd you do? What'd you do? <laughs> He's being embarrassed. He's being embarrassed. What'd you do? I, I, I said, shahakal. Really? How'd you say shahakal? <laughs> I thought that's what, you were, that's what I walked home with. Kavana? More kavana? Yeah, that little thing. Matter. matter. They're important. They're important. Therefore, we should be attention to them. And we should be more conscious. Of doing them. Doing them properly. Screw it up for everybody. Screw it up for everybody. You're you What I wanted to say was, Yitzchak, is that I think that people skip doing things that are important. Like, some people finish davening and don't see the last couple of pages of davening. Some people don't start, from, don't say the, the carbonus before davening. And why don't they say it? Because I don't know what these words mean. And I don't, they, I'm not so into these words. And, and therefore, they skip them. And they think, well, I know it's not valuable because I'm not so into it. So how could it possibly be valuable? And that's, and that, and that's because the yardstick we're using is, how do I feel about it? What do I think about it? And, I'm, and what, what I was trying to convey was that the yardstick that, that was used to build a tabernacle was the expression of Hashem's essence, which is the sanctification of the physical. So when a Jew does a, a uh, mitzvah, the physical earthly mitzvah, puts on a pair of tefillin, has no intention whatsoever, that mitzvah is going to bring Mashiach. That mitzvah does bring Mashiach. That mitzvah changes the time Mashiach is going to come. That changes the reality of the physical space. So yes, we have to have more kavanah to pay more attention also to the things that we're actually doing and, and do them. And I think that, oh, this doesn't matter. The, the, the guy is going to be embarrassed. I'm telling you, Mashiach's going to come the guy's saying, what'd you do? I said, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> That's what I said. I don't want to talk about it. Why do you want to talk about it? It was nothing. Really, what was it? <laughs> I, I, I did this. Show us. Show us what you did. What? What? <laughs> he mumbled. He mumbled the and, and maybe he said eight out of ten words, you know, correctly. And that's going to be Mashiach. Why? Because the physical actions that we do are far beyond what we can imagine. Can mumble or not? It's better not to mumble. Okay. It's better and a mitzvah. Mitzvah. You're right. No, a mitzvah without concentration is a body that is soul. Someone wants to put soul in mitzvah. Someone wants to have a beautiful home in the world. But I'm also saying, someone wants a beautiful home, and therefore it's important to have kavana. Important to think what you're doing. The is going to come and bring light to them, not just action. But on the other hand, I want to say is that don't skip pages in davening just because. Don't skip pages of tehillim. Don't say, oh, it, I mean, I, I have concentration. I can't concentrate right now. Don't, don't skip the pages. Realize, realize that, these, that these pages, that these mumbling that you're doing are, are actually the, 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 the building of the everlasting bliss of the coming Mashiach, Tchis HaMesim, and uh, you don't like the word bliss. Everlasting happiness. We're happy forever. It's going to be amazing. Resurrection of the dead. 
As Nachmanides says, no Mashiach is about. Mashiach is about not going to Ganei. Mashiach is about the resurrection of the dead in the physical world. That's Mashiach. Oh.